You're listening to Online Conversation, an event series that dives into important topics, themes, and trends in the mental health care space. This panel was recorded live at Alma Midtown on September 18th, 2019. Alma member and founder of Brooklyn-based Ketamine Infusion Clinic, Ember Health, Dr. Nico Grunman, psychotherapist, Rebecca Kronman, and psychologist and Yale University Clinical Research Fellow, Alex Belser, joined us as panelists. Alma founder and CEO, Harry Ritter, moderated the discussion. Alma is a network of mental health care providers dedicated to simplifying access to high-quality, affordable care. As members, therapists gain access to tools they need to grow and run a private practice, like insurance support, events and programming, and a community of their peers. Through this, Alma has grown into a destination for people seeking care. To learn more about Alma, visit HelloAlma.com. Welcome, everybody, to uh, this conversation. Um, we're so thrilled to have all of you. I see a lot of familiar faces and new faces. Um, so thank you all so much for being here tonight. Uh, tonight we're going to be talking about a really, really interesting topic. Uh, a topic that I think has become more and more one that uh, we hear uh, providers asking about, wanting to stand better, um, clients, uh, patients in the community exploring as an option for uh, the treatment of different um, areas of mental health, and one where there is uh, a lot of different um, conversation points that are happening and approaches that are kind of being explored where I think having access to really people who know this stuff backwards and forwards and can speak as true experts on the topic is of enormous value. So I think tonight we are, we are really fortunate to have uh, three uh, exceptional clinicians with us. Uh, to talk about this topic. I'm just going to give a word of background and then let the three of them uh, also take a second to introduce themselves and then we'll jump right in. So, uh, well, I have this other so I'll go. Uh, I'll so Alex, uh, Alex Belser uh, at the end there is a, uh, a PhD and a clinical research fellow at Yale um, and has worked on trials exploring uh, treatment for OCD and depression, focusing on the relief of suffering and how you can transform uh, lives through the research that he's doing. So uh, a really someone who I think would be a great resource to talk about a lot of the, great, the, the forefront research that's happening uh, in the space. And you can obviously share a little more on, on your, your background as well. Nico Grunman, uh, some of you may have heard from before, was here about three or four months ago speaking about uh, ketamine therapy and is here again with us today. Uh, member, a community member out in uh, Brooklyn who has a practice called Ember Health. Um, and there they do uh, infusion uh, a fusion-based treatment, and uh, that practice has been up. How long have you guys been? Uh, we started seeing clients last December, so, so a little under a year. Now. A little under a year. So uh, someone's really actually taking this into into private practice. And then to my left, uh, Rebecca Cronman, who is a clinical social worker in private practice, uh, who again, someone with enormous experience in terms of helping clients prepare for uh, and reduce a lot of these uh, risks associated with uh, psychedelic use. Um, and has done a lot here in terms of thinking about how you can follow up with clients to integrate insights uh, from treatment into uh, clinical practice. So maybe the three of you could, uh, we'll go, maybe Rebecca, you can start and share a little bit more about your your background path to this. And there we kind of go to the line. Sure. Um, well, I really appreciate you saying I have enormous experience, but I think <laughs> as a lot of people in this field um, would tell you, my experience is um, probably not enormous because there's a lot of new people in this field. So I've been doing psychedelic harm reduction and integration work for about a year and a half. Um, I train with the Center for Optimal Living. It's one of about three places where you can train in this type of um, specialty. Um, and the, the approach is harm reduction. And I will say that um, it's, it, it's, it's familiar to most of us. Um, who have gone through social work school and, and clinical training. Um, in my practice, I use mindfulness techniques, I use um, experiential techniques, um, and I work mainly with creative professionals, I work with adults only, um, which is great. Um, uh, yeah, so I, I, um, I'm excited to be talking about this, um, in addition to the work that I, that I collaborate a lot with Nico on, um, I see people who sort of have experienced the, the whole spectrum of 
psychedelics um, or are thinking about it, which is another important component. So I'm helping with the before and the after. And just one thing to mention is I don't help at all with the during um, because I work fully above ground. So all my work is completely legal. I think we're going to dive into a little bit about the intricacies of legal versus underground and all of that. Just to give everybody in the room a little bit of context to what's going on there. Um, I'm Nico, Nico Grunman. Um, as Perry mentioned, I have a practice Ember Health in Brooklyn Heights. Uh, we open to provide ketamine therapy uh, for major depressive disorder specifically, um, although we're starting slowly to branch out on that from other mental health diagnoses as the research continues to grow into these fields. Um, our model and, and my practice is to work as part of a care team. So we don't treat clients in isolation. We only take care of people who have other mental health professionals involved in their care, be those therapists, uh, psychologists, psychiatrists, uh, coaches in some cases. Um, and that's because we know that, as with anything in mental health, um, working in isolation doesn't really do as well as working with a larger group. And that's particularly true uh, with psychedelics and ketamine, which as we'll probably talk about, is sort of psychedelic. I mean, it's lumped into the group, uh, hence talking in panels like this. Um, I'll leave it there for now. <laughs> I think ketamine is highly psychedelic in a different way than yeah. <laughs> uh, at the right dosage than psilocybin, mushrooms, or LSD. But, uh, so my name is Alex Belser. I'm a psychologist by training. I have a small private practice. Um, I'm here because I... Um, I was really into psychedelic research when I was in college in the 90s, and nothing was happening at all. And then there was the 100th birthday party for Albert Hoffman, who's a Swiss chemist who synthesized LSD, and a bunch of psychedelic nerds sort of showed up, and there was this huge conference. And um, we came back in New York, and we started a group at NYU that did research with mushrooms, um, and we gave it to people who had advanced cancer, life-threatening illness. Um, to treat their anxiety, those associated with the cancer, and depression. Um, and we were able to publish that work. Um, since then, I, um, I teach at NYU. I um, am involved as a co-investigator in two other trials, also with psilocybin um, at Yale. Both of those trials uh, are headquartered out of New Haven, but one's for depression, and the other one's to treat uh, obsessive-compulsive disorder. And then here in New York, I'm part of this really amazing Team, like really heartfelt team of clinicians. Uh, we have a practice downtown uh, treating people with severe PTSD with MDMA. So I was working all day Saturday because I got to sit with the client for about nine hours um, doing an MDMA treatment for his quite severe uh, post-traumatic stress. Um, and we're trying to start a collective practice in psychedelic medicine beginning with ketamine um, in a slightly different model than what uh, Nico's doing at Ember. Um, which is more of a glimmer in our eye than an actual on-the-ground operation, but we're, we're hoping to make that happen. So I'm excited to be here. So Alex, maybe you can start us out. Um, can you give us a short, the, the abridged version, or the abridged history of uh, the intersection of psychedelics and therapy? And how, how, how did this come to, to sort of be a modality? And you mentioned a little bit of the sort of historical ebbs and flows of it, but can you kind of give us a, a short history of how that yeah, sure. to be? Depends on where you want to like, drop the needle, right? Yeah, because yeah. if you look at timelines of psychedelic use, we know that psychedelic plants are used in scores of cultures on the six inhabited continents. There's use in the Americas, there's use in uh, prehistoric Europe, there's use in Africa, there's use in Asia. Everything from the Rig Veda to people like Plato and Socrates having taken a psychedelic brew, the Kaikian. Um, there's lots of documented evidence, and much of that history is been elided from our sort of grade school educations, but if you start reading on it, you'll see that there's plenty of anthropological evidence. In the 20th century, to sort of fast forward to modern medicine, um, uh, in the 50s and 60s, psychedelic psychiatry was sort of normative. I mean, there were over a thousand peer-reviewed papers published on psychedelics, and I use that term broadly to encompass a wide variety of medications, but most of the work was on um, psilocybin, LSD at the time. Um, DPT, a few other compounds. Uh, it was standard practice on many. So this was not seen as outlandish or um, a scandalous sort of thing to do. It was quite normative. Um, Hollywood greats like um, uh, uh, Carrie Grant were treated with LSD in Hollywood clinics. It was a standard sort of boutique practice. Um, it wasn't until 1970 Nixon signs the Controlled Substances Law into 
uh, act in the law, uh, which prohibits psychedelics as, along with cannabis, makes them Schedule One drugs, which means they have no redeeming uh, uh, medical value, and they're highly, uh, as a class, where no redeeming medical value in their drugs that would be used, and that they are highly addictive. And we know that there's significant research that almost there's no addictive potential for most psychedelics, and uh, there may be strong medical value. So there was this long hiatus of 20 years where almost nothing happened. Um, MDMA has like a little history in couples counseling, and then it also becomes illegal. And then um, there's a little bit of research in the 90s, um, DMT research with Rick Straussman, looking at near-death-like experiences when people uh, take uh, DMT. We have a resurgence in underground or at least non-clinical use of ayahuasca. You can't throw a brick in Brooklyn without um, having somebody tell you about their ayahuasca In 2006, Hopkins comes out with a major groundbreaking study on um, psilocybin. And so for the last 15 years, we just have UCLA, uh, Hopkins, NYU, Imperial College, and a dozen other university uh, teams publishing research. In the last three years, it's really accelerated. So we've had a massive, for better and worse, infusion of uh, venture capital into the space. A company I was formerly on the board of advisors for, there was this tiny little not-for-profit, now has a valuation of the dollars of running European trials. Um, uh, Hopkins just got a $17 million study uh, funded. Uh, there's been multiple large VC ventures trying to figure out how to make teams that are operating are still either university affiliated or not for profit, uh, nonprofit philanthropically funded. So, and uh, that's a really helpful context. I think another kind of useful level setting is to talk a little bit about definitions and what is what in the space. So, um, there's a few terms that we even use in our introduction today that I think might might be useful just to level set around things like medication assisted therapy, harm reduction, preparation and integration. These are kind of some of the key, I think, uh, ideas that are often referenced in, in, in connection with psychedelic uh, treatment. Can the, any of the three of you kind of help us? Uh, create a little bit of that, or, or define a little bit of that vocabulary uh, when we start to think about about what what this actually means. Right. Do you have harm reduction, integration, preparation? Sure. <laughs> um, I think we're probably pretty familiar with harm reduction, but we're talking about um, people who are using substances already, and we are just trying to um, expand the conversation ask them to explore new angles, ask questions that they may not already be thinking about, and ideally reduce some of the risk that they might face. Um, with, I was just looking at the chart before I got here of harms that come to people from using um, various substances. Um, and so at the top of the chart, you might guess is, uh, what do you think the substance is that's at the way top of the chart? Yeah. And then at the bottom of the chart is psilocybin, the way bottom. Um, and ketamine is like, it's in, it's in the middle, but towards the bottom. Yeah. Right. Doctor, uh, doctor administered supervised. Yeah. <laughs> right. I'm going to say that a lot. Yeah. Um, marijuana is in the middle. Um, so, um, so yes, we're talking about harms, but we're, we're, when we think about the harms that can come to you from taking psychedelics, not as much as we're often led to believe through our socialization. Um, uh, preparation and integration. So preparation for psychedelics, again, involves asking somebody about, um, you know, who, who are you intending to do this with? Um, what are you intending to do? How much? Where will you get the substance from? How will you know what is in the substance that you get? What do you hope to get out of the experience? Um, you've probably heard about um, setting intentions, which can be useful for some people. It can be a little bit directive for other people. Um, uh, and then uh, um, integration. So I, this is something that from the scientists at Yale to the shaman in Peru will tell you is that it's not the substance itself. It's what you do afterwards in your life to infuse the teachings that you got from taking that substance. So as probably many people in this room know, it's because you might have taken psychedelics. It didn't necessarily change your life when you were at that 
party and you took mushrooms. But if you're if you're doing something with that um, work, um, and also your set and setting matters, and, and I'm gonna throw that one down the line. Um, uh, if you're doing something with that work, if you begin a meditation practice, if you take up an instrument, if you start journaling, if you reconnect with family, if you choose to address that trauma that you have been, um, you know, kind of putting, kicking down the can down the road, um, that is what makes the difference. It's not the substance itself. So that's where we as clinicians come in and we are incredibly um, important in, in that work. Uh, and, and integration doesn't have to happen with the clinician specifically. It can happen as a group. It can happen somewhat solo, but we, we do, like, I think uh, as a clinician, I tend to think that um, it can be particularly useful uh, to have that accountability person or people to work with after the, the experience itself. I think that, like, when we talk about psychedelics, there's, like, recreational psychedelics, there's people doing sacred, intentional work of psychedelics, either facilitated or unfacilitated in underground settings, which people can work with their therapy team on. Um, Medication-assisted work is mostly happening, except for ketamine and a few other things, um, sort of in clinical research studies. Um, and um, there's kind of two traditions in this, one where it's sort of psycholytic tradition, where you give them like a low dose of the medicine, and you may talk with them, or they may be in a group setting, um, and then at a higher dose, a psychedelic dose, where they may uh, have more, the effects are stronger, um, therapy or therapy team is present, but may not be, um, they may be encouraged to go inward to have a more psychedelic experience, and the talk comes later, afterward in the integration, either that day or in subsequent weeks. Um, I like the word medication-assisted um, treatments because I put that on my CV when I was ashamed to say that I was working with psilocybin and other psychedelics. Uh, I just said medication-assisted. But now I'm very happily out of that closet uh, and using psychedelic-assisted I think as the theme is what you're probably gathering from the way that we're talking is the context under which these things are used is quite important. And that's even more true in the wrap around care that you have. So none of these individual drugs are likely to have a long-lasting permanent change in your life if you're used in isolation, particularly when used in recreation. Um, they can be enormously powerful when used in a therapeutic setting, be that literally in a therapeutic setting with a provider in the room or under these harm reduction models where you're working to prepare for seeing these things currently underground or not in the United States and then return to use those insights. And there's, I mean, this is the thing my framework. We've tried to develop frameworks in the language around this because it does get quite complicated quickly. Um, but as a general rule, uh, we talk about the biology of what these things do. And each of the various psychedelics has rather unique interactions with human biology and brain chemistry. But there are biological effects that occur that are somewhat independent of a person's volition. Ketamine, for example, that's what I speak most about has about a 70% rate of waking up the next day and feeling less depressed. That's whether you participate in that experience or not. Um, there's also the experience themselves, which are often deeply psychologically fruitful when done carefully. And in these settings of preparing an attention setting, um, and particularly in helping clients get through that process when that can go awry. And then there's afterwards, which is oftentimes the integration is what it's called, um, we talk about it as neuroplastic windows. Some of these substances will actually induce chemically neuroplastic timeframes that make regular therapy work more effective. That allows these people to use that neuroplasticity productively to institute cognitive behavioral type changes in their own life in a way that makes it easier to internalize some of those tools and techniques from normal therapy. Um, that's been demonstrated now in a couple of different studies where those um, more traditional therapy practices markedly increase the duration of effect that you see from these treatments and become less depressed over longer periods of time when used within normal. So chemical, and again, this is not a framework that is all over the place. This is what we're still trying to figure out the language around. But the chemical effects, the experiential effects, and then what you do with it, integration or therapy work after. So Nico, can you actually talk to us a little bit about uh, legality? Uh, and uh, the various substances that are out there today 
um, that are available for clinical use, how they're available, uh, what, what that kind of framework looks like. Um, maybe we can kind of break this into two. We can talk first about that as a kind of domain, um, and then we can talk about some of the other work that's happening in, in, in other contexts. Sure. So, to be clear, this is a very evolving field, and you know, it changes regularly, like almost weekly, but definitely monthly. Um, as of September 2019, um, there is only ketamine that is FDA approved and legally accessible now by clinicians for use. Um, it is very clear that a clinician administering that drug is working within their scope of practice and doing that appropriately when done under certain guidelines. American Psychological Association, American Psychiatric Association has put out consensus statements around that in March. And so there's frameworks for legal use of ketamine um, for anyone for any client that this might be appropriate for. And I can obviously talk more in length about that, because that's my entire practice is focused on that. Um, there are a couple of substances that are in the research phase. So FDA has agreed that these things have medical potential, and they're therefore under investigation under a huge number of studies at this point that are looking into this. Um, MDMA tends to fall in that category, uh, street name ecstasy, um, psilocybin, street name mushrooms, magic mushrooms. Um, and some work on LSD that's going on currently as well. Um, and so from a practical standpoint, those things are accessible in a trial standpoint. And New York City is certainly a hub of where that research is going on, and, and there are ways to access that for clients that might be appropriate. Um, we can usually help guide to those particular trials if that is something that might be helpful. Um, but you're not finding that for your regular patients who are otherwise um, seeking care. And it's a very subspecial group that has to qualify and meet a bunch of criteria. And then there's um, the recreational use or the underground use, which is um, of the same substances that are often in these research settings, um, but done in a way that's not licensed by the FDA or DEA, where you find practitioners who are putting their careers at risk doing this should the enforcement agency choose to crack down on that. Um, and those are often um, underground for that reason, where the People practicing that profession are doing so because usually they believe it to be deeply important and helpful, um, but are aware that should an agency kind of crack down on their services, um, that they would likely not be able to practice going forward in jail time and all that fun stuff that goes with that. So maybe before we, uh, I, I want to come back to uh, the evidence that's out there today uh, for the use of these various substances and different types of disorders. Before we do that, let's talk a little bit about what you were kind of getting to at the end there of uh, the recreational use, uh, the sort of non-FDA approved outlets where some of this is being used and incorporated in clinical practice. Rebecca, I don't know, maybe you can kind of walk us through that a little bit. Can you, can you help kind of for all of us that are here, I think Nico laid out sort of the what, what's available today, FDA approved, uh, broad daylight, you know, whatever you're going to be, ketamine, uh, what else is happening out there? Can you kind of give us a little bit of a lay of the land in terms of, of the other way, response where this is kind of showing up and how that's getting applied? Sure. Um, lot, lots of things. So um, anything from uh, something taking place very locally, as uh, who said Brooklyn? You have to throw a stone in Brooklyn. Everybody's thinking of Alaska. Yeah. So that, that's definitely happening. Um, and it's being administered by uh, someone who is perhaps a clinician and perhaps uh, coming from a shamanic or indigenous tradition. That might be a white person, by the way, uh, doing, that, uh, doing that work with shamanic tradition kind of informing that. Um, so it, it can be happening um, uh, internationally, um, and there are varying degrees of safety um, going on in international ceremonies. Um, you know, I've heard about beautiful um, healing therapeutic ceremonies uh, taking place internationally that are run by sometimes Americans, sometimes indigenous people. Um, and I've also heard about 400-person ayahuasca ceremonies that were like Bananas and, quite frankly, damaging and, and dangerous. Um, 
there are um, there. You know, I'm just going to share a story that I heard yesterday from a shaman. This is just something to kind of keep in mind. You know, as we as this work expands, so in um, uh, in the Southwest, there is a tribe that it was using peyote as part of their culture for many, many years. Um, they are very poor. And so with this increased interest in taking psychedelics, this tribe has taken to welcoming tourists into their ceremony. And it has destroyed the culture around um, the peyote, which was used as a sacrament in the same way that you would go to church and get a wafer. It was used as a holy sacrament. And just something for us to consider as we are we are newcomers to this work. I say we, I want to say um, white people, Westerners, um, and what kind of things can happen um, to the, the indigenous people who have been using this for many thousands of years. So just something to be aware of. Um, again, it can happen really safely, and not, it doesn't have to be a clinician who's administering this um, for it to be a safe and healing experience. That's really helpful. So I want to I want to go uh, for a second into the research and what we know about the evidence to support the use of these different substances in the treatment of of various mental health uh, disorders. Maybe Nico, you can start us out, and then Alex, we can kind of transition to you in terms of talking about where is the preponderance of evidence today. Uh, for the use of psychedelics, you know, if you're if, if everybody here were to walk away with a, this is the spot where psychedelics have the strongest evidence for treatment today, and this is how or this is the modality or route of administration where it has the highest kind of, uh, what would that be? And then, Alex, maybe you can talk to us a little bit about where you see it going in terms of the new research that's coming out. What are the other secondary or or, or, or tertiary applications where again there's there's real evidence-based research that we're that we're starting to look at in, in you know peer-reviewed journals and really starting to see kind of a, a clear uh, a clear evidential framework. Yeah, trying to <laughs> summarize a lot shortly. <laughs> um, so a bit of chicken and egg in the situation where because ketamine has been legal since the '60s, late '60s, um, and never was classified in a way that a lot of these other substances were. There's been a lot more research on that. Um, particularly for mental health, going back to 99 was the first NIH study that looked specifically for depression. Um, at the highest level, a couple of dozen randomized placebo-controlled trials of various ways of conducting those, um, showing positive outcomes for depression. High-level tagline, 75% efficacious within treatment-resistant depression, so within folks who have already failed at least two antidepressants, that includes large groups of people who have either done or failed electroconvulsive therapy. Like the ones who are usually put in the most clinically depressed category. Of my personal clients at Ember, roughly a third of them are in that group where they are in and out of hospitals, they have multiple prior suicide attempts. Um, a lot of them have gone through electroconvulsive therapy. A bunch of our patients were on six different um, mood modeling chemicals before coming to us. Um, and it, in that group, it's still 75% efficacious, which is kind of stunning. And quite a few of our clients are in these kind of more functional venture capital CEO type people who are still quite depressed, often on meds. Um, there is a ton of research trying to tease apart more because it is so effective from a biological standpoint in that um, they're trying to tease apart why and how and how we can therefore use that to learn more. This is how S-ketamine, the patented derivative, got um, FDA approval in March of this year from Johnson & Johnson. That was the first of this very many things in the pipeline trying to uh, do more with this. You can put a very cynical hat on that um, from a research and pharmaceutical standpoint, but I'm trying to be generous. Um, yeah. <laughs> um, and there's also a lot of questions that still remain because this was approached from a very clinical setting. We know a lot about um, dose and IV and beeping monitors and white sterile bright lights and, and, and traditional doctor's office settings. There's 
not nearly as much known, although that is changing about components of the experience that are predictive of positive outcomes. And we do know those to be correlated in quite profound ways, as well as what you can do afterwards, looking at that in a much more rigorous setting to figure out what modalities of therapy are more effective and what kinds of timing if you have to go back to continue doing this work that is then going to be more useful for the clients in the long run. And that is evolving research. Um, we try very carefully at Ember to keep abreast of that and have that modify what we're doing for our clients. And so part of the close loop communication is because of that, because there is good evidence that the care team is more helpful. I'll stop talking about ketamine. Um, at a very high level, and this is where you're going to have much more than I do on this current state of things. Um, MDMA is looked at and it's very close to FDA approval specifically for PTSD. Um, the roughly expected time frame is 2021, if things go well, uh, where that would be a FDA approved treatment for PTSD. To be clear, that's only a treatment to be done in the context of a very structured therapeutic setting. So a couple of months of psychotherapy involved in that. During those three months, there's only three sessions, three days on which you're taking natural medication. And so it's not just that you're going home and taking MDMA and you're going to go over your PTSD. It's within this framework, and the framework's actually part of the expected FDA approval. Using it in that framework is how it's been shown to be very helpful. Psilocybin has more early stage research and currently some rather large trials being started. Um, with a ballpark 2024 of legalizations in a roughly similar structure with therapy as part of that, assuming a lot of things go the way that they're expected to. There's a lot of ifs there over the five-year time frame. I'm going to feed off to you because that's probably where my knowledge ends on this. Yeah, I mean, what are these medicines for? What do they do? What do they work? What are they good for? As far as I'm concerned, the jury's still out. We do have a lot of good evidence. I'll try to summarize what we know. The first thing is this whole, I have to make a critique around evidence-based practice and peer-reviewed medicine because almost all of these medications or plants are, are orphaned drugs in the sense that they're long past patent. I mean, MDMA was synthesized by Bayer before World War One. Uh, you know, it's like, it didn't exist for a long time. So there's no money in it to bring these drugs to market. And all of the psilocybin and MDMA research and by the way, these are the two drugs that are leading the field because they are, I mean, there's some reasons they were selected, but um, Ibogaine, especially for opioid addiction, is this huge area. We talk about what that is. And then DMT, or also sometimes called DMT, 5-MeO-DMT, ayahuasca for a variety of indications, uh, peyote, which is a sacrament in the Native American church, all have long traditions of use or interesting clinical potential applications. Um, but there's no money to bring the drug to market. I mean, the average cost to bring a drug to market is about a billion dollars um, because so many drugs fail, and who has a billion dollars in philanthropy to bring a drug to market? So um, everything that's happened so far has been happening out of like, philanthropic costs, which makes it really difficult and slow. Uh, Sorry. Which is starting to change. Um, the... The thing I want to say about psychedelics is that it's uh, sometimes talked about as a, as a cure in search of an ailment. Like, we don't really, like, you outlined some, like, bio, biomechanical benefits, potentially. There's therapeutic aspects that people do life reviews, and all sorts of catharsis and emotional things happen with their histories and maybe consolidation on trauma. And then there's these sort of, like, mystical spiritual experiences that people have. And then there's this sort of like neuroplastic window of learning to stop ruminating or to, to kick the habit and stop smoking afterward. And so you have this complex series of pathways that seem to be good for a lot of things. And so, um, for example, for MDMA, we find that when treating people with severe PTSD, these are people who have like really severe PTSD. They, they don't have a mild or moderate PTSD. Um, in a recent pool analysis of over 100 patients, we find that 68% no longer meet diagnostic criteria for PTSD at the end of the treatment. PTSD is notoriously difficult to treat. Treatments like various forms of talk therapy, cognitive processing, EMDR, helpful for some people, but not helpful for most people most of the time. Um, and it's really a game changer. And this is why the FDA, which is not 
usually your psychedelically enthusiastic organization <laughs> granted what's called breakthrough therapy status designation to MDMA, which is a huge, uh, which gives it a little bit of a fast track for review for use um, in a prescriber context. Similar story, a little longer story with psilocybin. And the reason psilocybin was picked was because LSE has way too much cultural baggage associated with it. And also it's like a two to three hour longer experience for some people. So, I mean, it's hard enough to be a clinician in a room with somebody for eight hours. It's like, do it like 12, it's like a whole other ballgame. Um, I can make that joke in this sort of room. But with psilocybin, so our study at NYU, this was people with cancer. We find that uh, people with depression, we had over an 80% response rate, over four out of five people with depression had a significant decrease in their depression, and that lasted up to a year. This is on one dose moderate to high dose of psilocybin in a highly supportive context with lots of psychotherapy. Uh, same thing with anxiety. We find slightly lower response, but 58% of our um, of our patients, this is 30 patients, uh, responded, uh, had an anxiolytic effect, anxiety reduction. Also, uh, which is both immediate and lasting up to a year in follow-up, we see similar results from Hopkins. Um, and this is why uh, psilocybin is being selected to treat depression, specifically treatment-resistant depression, uh, as Nico was saying, in both uh, Europe at a multi-site trial and in the United States at a multi-site trial. There's some controversy about that because it's being funded by a for-profit organization um, that trans transitioned from a not-for-profit organization. Uh, so there's an interesting controversy there. there. The other major indications would be substance use and misuse and stopping and sort of addictive behaviors. So we've seen psilocybin uh, in multiple clinical trials as a treatment for uh, nicotine cessation, people trying to stop smoking, which is incredibly hard. But in these focused trials, we have somewhere between two-thirds and four-fifths um, quit rate. So they combine CBT with a dosage date for psilocybin. In the first few trials, 80% of people stopped smoking. These are people who had had dozens of attempts to quit smoking before. Similar thing, we're running an alcoholism trial at NYU. These are people who have persisting alcohol use disorder. Uh, there's cocaine use disorder, psilocybin for cocaine use disorder um, happening um, in Alabama. Um, eating disorders is coming online. Psilocybin, psilocybin for OCD. Uh, I'm a co-investigator of that trial at, uh, in New Haven at Yale. Uh, a few different trials for depression. Uh, we have it for social anxiety and autistic adults. This is MDMA for social anxiety and autistic adults, not as treatment for autism or Asperger's, as a treatment for the concomitant social anxiety in that population, with some fantastic results. There's an oncoming trial for couples therapy, which is a long tradition of couples therapy with MDMA. So this is conjoint therapy for MDMA. There's a treatment at UCLA, excuse me, um, UCSF for long-term demoralization in <laughs> HIV and AIDS survivors. So these tend to be older queer and gay men in the San Francisco area who've been living with AIDS for, uh, or HIV for decades, uh, taking in a group therapy for psilocybin, really moving and fascinating study. Um, and then the last thing is that it's not just for clinical indications, there's this whole spirituality research. So um, this could be medicine for the betterment of well people, as Bob Jesse says. So it's not just about treating pathology, it's about um, creativity and problem solving and having people having profound breakthroughs and sort of their thinking about problems. Um, we know that the, the uh, double helix structure of DNA was probably, uh, as Crick's own admission, discovered under the influence of LSD. Um, there's a huge spiritual frame for this sort of work. And um, the majority of people compare these high-dose experiences in a supportive context with among either the most meaningful or top five most meaningful experiences of their lives. So um, even for people that aren't religious, you have all these findings that they be, agnostics become religious after these experiences, which is strange. Uh, I mean, we <laughs> don't tend to think about these sorts of research. So a lot of my research has been in like, the mystical side of mystical experience. Um, and comparing people who have spontaneous near-death experiences, car crashes with spiritual experiences, and psychedelic-induced spiritual experience. And that goes back all the way to William James. That goes back to Bill W., who's the founder of AA, who had a psychedelic experience. He was hit the Belladonna cure, psychedelic cure for alcoholism, before he started AA, a um, 12-step program, and tried to get psychedelics into the violence of AA. So there's this long tradition of spiritual uh, experience. 
and it's exciting. And I think that we're like really just at the beginning of understanding like, what it is that we're working with now. And so I hope that we approach it with some humility. Great. So I want to I want to pull us back from the cutting edge of research to the the, the clinical the clinical room itself. We're, we're in a room now with clinicians who uh, may be interested in in two kind of components to this. One, um, when should I think about the use of psychedelics for someone that I'm taking care of? When it when when would be a uh, when would it be appropriate for me as a clinician to uh, want to prompt that discussion or consider a referral or exploring uh, whether it's ketamine in a context like Ember um, or, or otherwise into the clinical conversation? Uh, and two, how, how should clinicians think about responding to inbound interest from clients about the role of psychedelics uh, in, the, in the treatment of whatever the issues that they might be bringing to the, to the room? So, uh, Rebecca, maybe you can start us all. Uh, I'm curious, you know, in your practice, how do you think about those those two things? What, what are the kind of when you're sitting with someone and you're you're seeing them, you know, you're like, you know, I I want to I want to call Nico. Uh, you know, I think that this person would really benefit. What what does that look like? Mm-hmm. And then, uh, you know, what are you what are you generally seeing when people come to you with interest, and what what kind of goes through your mind as you're thinking about the benefits and costs and opportunity there? Um. Well, I often want to send people to Nico because he's an amazing person to send people to. Um, there are some practical considerations. One of them is cost. Um, so uh, you can speak a little bit more about this, but it's, it's expensive. It's expensive. Insurance doesn't cover it uh, often. Changing? Good. Okay. Uh, so ketamine is the only thing that I will initiate a conversation on because this is the only thing that is legal. I will... My in my personal in my training and my personal practice, I do not initiate conversation about any other psychedelic because they are not legal. Um, so and it's hard sometimes because you we've all seen patients who are saying like I've been on Lexapro for six months and I don't really feel good and my my libido is terrible and I've gained weight and this is no good, and then you say yeah, and it's frustrating. Because there's not much more you can say to that person, um, so um, so yes, that's when I would be happy to to speak about um, working with Nico if if it feels appropriate, and also because Nico is very um, I, I really appreciate this about you, but very um, uh, sort of straight and narrow in the practice, and he's using it to treat depression specifically. So if that's not the diagnosis, or if we can't kind of like wiggle around that diagnosis, then I might not. Um, and in fact, there are cases that we've shared where, you know, yes, there was depression, but actually there was OCD um, that was really creating problematic things in this person's life. Or yes, there was depression, but there was a major attachment issues that were not being resolved, you know, by the administration of Kennedy. Um, so... Inbound, um, you know, I've heard <laughs> some of my colleagues um, have talked about putting Michael Pollan's book on their shelves, <laughs> like front and center, which I think is great. Um, inbound is different, right? So um, I ha- I'm sure a lot of us have had this experience where people are coming to us and saying that they read the book or saying that they heard about their friend doing something or saying that this is something that they're considering. And then it really opens up... Um, a, a much bigger discussion where we can talk about, you know, what have you heard? That's really the first question that, that I would ask somebody. So what have you heard? Um, and then, you know, maybe correcting misinformation or maybe adding on to that information. Um, I don't refer to underground providers contrary to like <laughs> three quarters of the phone calls that I receive, even though it is very clear on my website. Um, I, I won't send somebody out to do this work, um, except for to Nico. Um, I, uh, you know, it is, again, it's a little bit frustrating there too, because it's like you, as somebody who's been doing this work, we were just talking about this is a small field. So, you know, I know people. Um, who can do it? I know people who can do it well, but I'm never going to say to somebody, you know, this is who you should see. 
Um, and then that can be a little bit frustrating for people, but I do try to connect them with communities. So I work very closely with the Brooklyn Psychedelic Society. There's a Manhattan branch as well. And that's something that I feel perfectly comfortable saying to someone, why don't you go to their meetup and see what it's about and ask some questions. You're not going to have to ask that many questions to get you know, the name of, of someone who can help you out with whatever it is that you're looking for. Plus, it gives someone a community base to work from, which is incredibly important because there's a lot of people who are doing this in isolation, and that creates a tremendous amount of stigma. It creates um, a, a lack of opportunity for processing what's going on for someone. And, you know, there's a lot of things that come up on people's trips that they, you know, people think that they're Jesus. People see themselves being birthed. You know, they re-experience their birth. They go through death. Intense, intense experiences that when you tell your friend who's never taken psychedelic, they're like, oh, like, what's going on with you? Um, And just, but it doesn't sound cuckoo in, in an environment where like everybody's like, yeah, 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 I thought it was Jesus too. So, you know, it's, it's great to it's great to connect people with community um, uh, of support, especially when you cannot be the person or if, if you are you know, abiding by the same kind of um, uh, practices as I am, you can't be the person to refer them. So, uh, before we come back to Nico, and I, I, Nico, you, you, you do a great job, I think, of, uh, at least in the past conversations, kind of talking through a little bit more of the, if someone in this community, for example, wanted to refer a client to you, these are sort of the things that you look for to say, this is who I, you know, and then this is sort of what they can expect. Before we kind of come to that, sure. just picking up on the, on the last part of Rebecca, your comments around this frustration about the fact that, you know, MDMA in the, in the treatment of PTSD or whatever these different, you know, areas might be. Uh, can, can you uh, share with, with, uh, with our audience tonight, if they, if, if they encounter a client in practice where they really think that there's an opportunity here and they'd like to find a way for them to enroll in clinical trial or other sort of more exp- experimental work, is that, is that plausible? Is it possible? Sure. Is there a resource that they would look to or go to? Yeah, then email and call you. I just feel like I'm hitting my head up against the wall because I get referrals all the time. People who want to take psychedelics who think they might be qualifying, and it's really hard. I'm not gonna lie, it's really hard to get into clinical trials uh, in general. Um, so many exclusion criteria. Uh, we used to joke when we were treating people for the psilocybin for um, existential distress and cancer patients is that we needed the healthy. We need to find the healthy dying. It was, it was like we had to be like totally healthy and able to take the medicine and get also be people really ill. And so um, in New York City, uh, we're going to have uh, at least one site for treatment-resistant depression opening up in Columbia. Dr. Hallerstein is the PI there. They're not recruiting yet. I hear the recruiting there this fall, um, so that might be a possibility. Uh, We are still actively recruiting uh, at two sites in New York for MDMA-assisted psychotherapy for people with PTSD. The person would have to have severe PTSD, actually qualify for PTSD um, by DSM diagnosis. So that's an opportunity. And uh, you can contact, uh, if you just Google mass.org PTSD MDMA, I think it'll be the first, like, how to make a referral to that. Um, or you can contact me and I can pass it along. Counsel, just bring on one of us, would usually put that. And, um, but I find that most people are doing some sort of underground something. Um, this is like the use case 80% of the time. So um, I just want to say I have a slightly different take on this. There is a community of people that um, are doing psychedelic support. There's a website called psychedelic.support, which is like their psychology today. It's like a very small directory of therapists who are actively offering <coughs> harm reduction and psychedelic support on that site. They're willing to talk to clients about their use of psychedelic plants and medicines in a non judgmental and support way. Um, I believe as part of getting on that site, you have to basically say, and I'm not going to make any referrals to underground providers. Um, I have a website. On the website, I have a psychedelic support thing. I'm very upfront about that. Um, I think that even though psychedelics are technically legal, um, we ask our clients about a lot of legal things. Like we We ask them about sex work. We ask them about drug use. We ask them about things like drinking and driving. We ask them about violence. Um, I think that on intake or as it comes up, um, 
if I, I think that asking people if they've ever had like a um, profound mystical experience, I ask them about spiritual history, I ask them about psychedelics explicitly, um, and uh, people will tell you. I guess I'm curious about their cannabis use, like at least, but oftentimes people take MDMA or psilocybin or LSD in college or at some point. Um, my sense is that most people um, carry into the consulting room with them quite a bit of stigma and or shame around that and concern that you will report them, that you will judge them, that you will not be supportive. And unless Michael Pollan's book and a bunch of, um, you know, you know, uh, sort of like Shapipo uh, <laughs> things on the wall, like in, in, in that book, they're, they're not sure they're going to get a welcome from you on that sort of work. And so, not that I broadcast that. I mean, I, I, mean, I represent this, I look like the straightest, like norm core view in the world. And like, you're a real weird. <laughs> So, Alex brings up a point that I deal with clients a lot about stigma and the um, cultural baggage that's often associated with this. And it's one of the reasons you'll hear me say some controversy about ketamine not necessarily being psychedelic or not always being psychedelic. It's because it gives people an opportunity to enter that conversation without necessarily associating it with the cultural baggage or the cultural implications of it. Um, so, Putting on my MD hat, because that is where a lot of this comes up, is the legality of it, the frameworks of how you um, administer versus prescribe, and how you actually go through the mechanics of getting this for a client. Um, and within that framework of, of being as above board, as above board as possible, um, ketamine is what we use. Uh, we don't prescribe ketamine, because even though that is legal, it is a... Um, gray area for medical boards, um, and it's actually against APA guidelines, although again, that's a hugely debated topic, but if you're trying to do this as straight and narrow as possible, our practice is to administer it in office. I do the administration, and I personally supervise the administration. And so in that way, it's essentially impossible to argue that this is not being done um, in a medically appropriate context. Um, that's a lot of hoops to jump through, and it's actually one of the reasons we set up my organization and the way that we did was because that's really hard for professionals to access for their clients. It leads to this whole conversation about care teams and relational situations where clients will refer, providers will refer clients away. We work with everybody together to get this for the client because otherwise it's quite difficult to access. And then we make sure the client follows up with their existing providers for that longer term care. And our core part of that communication system. Um, but within that, so Harry asked about the kind of clients. If you have depression, not even necessarily treatment-resistant depression, but depression broadly, it's hard to argue that this is not a helpful treatment for you. Um, you can argue specifics of efficacy percentages and whatnot, but as a rule, if depression is a label that you hold, this will be a treatment that should be of some assistance. And if it's not, and still done in the medically safe, appropriate context, it's unlikely to be in a negative situation. Like the medical risks of this are close to zero. They're not zero. There is a reason it's a doctor-administered thing, but they're in the one to 10,000 to one in a million range for medical issues coming up with that. Um, I get to put on my emergency medicine hat, which is my training, where we use doses of ketamine in the ER that are 100 to 1,000 fold higher in the blood plasma levels. Um, compared to what we give for mental health. So if the label that you're putting to the person is depression, then this is an accessible treatment. And that's particularly true when these people have gone through a lot and haven't had success in treatment. So for, when you're thinking about clients that this might apply to, anybody who's gone through any gamut of trying to treat the depression and been unsuccessful, this comes up as a very helpful option. Um, something like half of the clients I work with also have a stated goal of getting off of their medications, um, particularly because of the unfortunate side effects of most antidepressants. Um, and that is something we can assist with as well, working with the prescribing physician to get in that conversation base. But that is usually a goal with my clients. And if this does help them, 80-ish percent likelihood that's true, then they can wean their other meds in a safe way as well. Um, to be clear, there is a lot of research for ketamine on anxiety, um, OCD. The Stanford's work on OCD has come to the forefront on this. Um, Substance abuse or misuse, um, cocaine specifically, and that's the 
study that was doing or was doing. Um, and so there are a number of other things that you can find providers that are willing to administer testing for those things um, in an above board way, in a legal way that's defensible. Um, my personal practice is to focus on depression and the depressive state of bipolar simply because there's the bulk of medical evidence in those two categories where you can't argue those two. Um, you could debate the other stuff, although you're probably still going to see benefit in those categories. Um, it enters back into that gray zone. To be clear, our practice as a member is also certainly not the only practice in New York, and you're going to find a host of different providers using this in different ways. And this is where the questions that become really important if you are looking for providers is, are they in the room? Is somebody present? Sometimes the term sitting is used. Are they, is there somebody in the room with them to psychologically support that person during the sessions, much less medically? Does the client have access to these outside of that setting? Are they being prescribed the drug that they could use at home or could use recreationally or, or not in the context by which you're originally prescribing it? Those are things that are important to review because they change the framework for this and they have their downsides. Um, so we try to set up our uh, with this as above board local DE agent's name is Scott. Scott comes to our office. <laughs> like, it, it's as clear as it could be that this is a accessible, appropriate thing for people with depression, and that's kind of how we've chosen to practice. But you, you're not saying this, so I will. But there's a lot of shady ketamine clinics that right. are strange, and so what is very different about Nico's clinic is that you walk in and you're like, Am I in a spa? It's gorgeous. It's so soothing in there. They have paid so much attention to set and setting. And so there's this immediate effect on someone when they walk into a space like Nico's, where, and, and Nico's demeanor is also very, you know, nurturing and professional. Um, so that makes a huge difference. Appreciate that. Actually, one last thing. Yeah. I brought up cost, and that is definitely something people need to have a little familiarity with. Um, so again, in this access for ketamine specifically, um, it's not cheap. Uh, we, we charge $500 per infusion. Our particular practice is not to charge for intake, not to charge for care coordination follow-up. But if you get an infusion, it's a $500 through the day of. Um, we do have sliding scale, so that's an income-based sliding scale. If you can document a financial need, we'll lower the cost. We have to cap our practice at 20% of infusions in order to keep our doors open. Um, and we also have an artist program that's a separate conversation. But if there's a client who has a financial issue who creates things who we've exchanged for bartered um, treatments for artwork before. There's also what that treatment does for your life and how that is actually changing your everything. So clients who are depressed access healthcare resources. This is a big um, reason we set up Ember to begin with, with diversity medicine background. If you're depressed, you're 2.6 times more likely to go to the ER for chest pain. And when you meet me in the ER and you tell me you have chest pain, you're going to get an expensive workup, usually about $15,000 to prove you don't have a heart attack. And so if you can prevent emergency department visits by treating depression to the system, to the nation as a whole, this is unarguably cost-effective. Like, so drastically so, it's crazy. It's cost-effective. If they're not being hospitalized, if they're not paying for that mental health hospitalization, they're often thousands and thousands of dollars. Um, it can be enormously cost-saving for them in the long run. It is really hard to internalize costs saved. So that's often a difficult thing to try to explain to clients, and I often don't even bother to go into that route, because saying for a couple of thousand dollars a year, your depression is going to be gone, you're going to save way more than that, that can be a complicated argument to make. People aren't good about opportunity cost. But it is an important thing to understand that if you treat their depression well, and this does that well, I mean, you will be saving costs for the people in the long run and their access to care. I want to just take a moment to thank the three of you. Uh, I was saying this before uh, we, we kicked off, but um, the idea of being able to gather in a place like this, uh, connect uh, with each other and talk about a topic that is so relevant, so important, so at the forefront of uh, the necessary change that's happening in this landscape for three people as experienced and as knowledgeable as the three of you is really a privilege. 
um, and we all are just so grateful. So I, on behalf of everyone here, I just want to express our gratitude to the three of you, not just for the work that you do, but for also carving out time from what I know are incredibly busy schedules uh, to spend time with us and to talk to us about this topic. So thank you all very, very much. Thank you so much for listening. To learn more about events, programming, and other membership perks at Alma, visit helloalma.com or email membership at helloalma.com. That's helloalma.com.